into Ephesians chapter 2. And it's really great to be back on Wednesday night and preaching from the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's been a month now since our last uh, study in this book, vacations, and I was gone, and, and we had special uh, services that came up, and so we weren't able to look into our study. But I'm glad we're able to come back tonight to the second chapter. And we're in a portion of the scripture where Paul is explaining how Gentile believers have been brought into the covenant of grace. And this is really a very remarkable transformation because we noticed in this second chapter that uh, Paul told the Gentile Christians that they at once or at one time were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. He said that they were uncircumcised and he said that they were strangers from the covenants of promise. But then he even went a step further than that, and you might say that he dealt the most crushing blow of all, and that's when he said that they were without hope. And he said, you are without hope because you were without God in the world. And the intention of Paul in this chapter is to show the Gentiles just how much God had done for them. But not only is he showing the Gentiles this, but he's also uh, speaking to the Jews as well. And he wants them to understand how far God had brought them. I mean, the difference between Jews and Gentiles in their natural spiritual state was really no difference at all. Now, of course, the Jews had been given uh, the promises. They'd been given the covenants of God. The Jews had circumcision. But before they could ever exercise all of those rights and privileges that God had given, the first thing that had to happen, they must be brought from spiritual death into spiritual life. Just like the Gentiles needed to be saved, the Jews did as well. And so now the uh, message that Paul is giving us here, that by the blood of Christ, both Jews and Gentiles are equal in the sight of God. They stand on equal footing And both can have access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Now, in our reading tonight, Paul explains uh, this new privilege of our relationship in Christ. And I'd like for you to stand as we read God's Word tonight. And we're going to look this evening at three privileges, three special privileges that are given to us by virtue of this relationship with Christ. Now, beginning verse number uh, 19 of chapter 2, Paul says, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. And we just ask you, Lord, you to speak to our hearts to this message. Help us to learn something about your word. And thank you for the privileges that we have of being your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know it's been a long time since we were in this second chapter. And perhaps you have forgotten some of the things we've talked about. But in this chapter... Paul follows a pattern of telling the Ephesians what they once were and what they are now. He says, you were this and now you were that. And this is the way he begins this 19th verse. He says, you were strangers and foreigners. And so he begins with a negative here, but then he turns around and he expresses the positive. He said, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints. And it's important that Paul establishes where they are now, because as he begins to talk about the rights and the privileges of being a child of God, it really doesn't matter at all how exciting these things are and how great these things are if the person that he 
he's talking to really doesn't know who the Lord is. And so Paul is telling us here that we need to make sure ourselves that we have been truly transformed in order for us to enjoy these privileges. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? And so it would do no good for Paul to state all of the privileges and all the rights that Christians have if these people that he is speaking to are not really Christians. And so he lays this out before them. You were this Or you were that, now you are this, you are different. If you are in the faith, you're no longer what you used to be. And so now you have these Christian privileges. You were strangers before, but you're not strangers anymore. Now there are three areas of privileges that belong to Christians. Two of these areas come automatically. By virtue of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have two of these things automatically. But the third thing that we're going to talk about requires something more. This requires a special act of obedience from God's children. Now, I want to speak to you about these three areas of privilege. First of all, Paul is showing us that we are in God's kingdom. You see, when you become a child of God, you are automatically placed into the kingdom of God. Verse number 19 refers to the kingdom when it states this, "...ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints." One of the errors that's common among Christians today is to confuse the kingdom with the church and to make these two things, kingdom and church, synonymous terms. But the kingdom and the church are not the same thing. In the New Testament, the kingdom and the church are not the same thing. In fact, the words church and kingdom are translated from two entirely separate Greek words, and these are not words that are interchangeable. The church is an assembly, but the kingdom is a domain of the king. A church assembly has to be local, but a kingdom or this kingdom is universal. And this confusion between these two terms, church and kingdom, has caused this idea that people have today of a universal, invisible church. Now, the kingdom is universal. The kingdom is invisible, but the church is not. You see, when you get saved, you are automatically placed into the kingdom. There's not a thing that you have to do to get into the kingdom of God. You just trust Christ as your Savior. And that's because the kingdom is universal. And so you are placed there automatically, and you become a citizen of God's kingdom. Well, there are certain advantages, certain privileges in being in the kingdom of God. And the first one is this, that is, we share a common relationship. In verse number 19, Paul says, "...we are no more strangers and foreigners." Let's think about that for a moment. What is a stranger? What does he mean by a stranger? Well, a stranger is a person who is among people who are not his own, their own. If you travel to a foreign country, you will recognize immediately that you're not among your people. Things are different in another country. Habits and customs will be different. The language is different. The food that people eat is often different. And you'll find also that many of just the everyday activities of life will be different from what we do in this country. And so when you go into a foreign country, there, there's this uneasiness and there's this unsettled feeling that you have because you're not in your country. And I guess the best way that you could state it is this. It's just not home. It's not your home. 
But when you are in your country, you're in a place where you have a common relationship with the people there. And so just about everybody will dress the same way. Just about everybody will eat the same kinds of foods or follow the same kinds of customs. We all talk the same. Even though people in California talk funny, we all talk the same. People in Kentucky talk right. But we share common goals and opinions, and that's because we're in the same country. And this is the very picture that Paul gives. Christians are fellow citizens of the same country, and we have a uniformity. Why? Because we have been transformed into the image of Christ. And if we are like Christ and we have a relationship with Christ, if all of us have that relationship, then by necessity we must also have a relationship with one another. Then the second thing that we notice about being in the kingdom is that we share common laws. In, in a foreign country, there are different laws. For instance, I don't have any trouble getting into the car and driving our highways because I understand American law. I understand how to drive on American roads. Some people who ride with me may dispute that, but I do know how to drive on American roads. A few years ago, I was driving in England. And I couldn't get used to that. I mean, to me, it's just not right to drive on the left side of the road. I mean, there is seriously something wrong with that. That's a screwed up thing. But, but I, I remember I was driving in England, and I came to one of those roundabouts. You know what I'm talking about? Now, those things would be difficult to negotiate, even if everybody was driving on the right. But everybody's driving on the left-hand side of the road, and I'm trying to get into traffic there. To top it off, I was driving a car that we'd picked up in Germany, and they drive on the same side of the road that we do in Germany, and so I've got a car with a steering wheel on the left like we have, and I have to drive on the left side of the road, and I have to get into the traffic in this roundabout. Now, I knew that I was in a foreign country because I heard words I'd never heard before, but... You know, I understand the laws of this country. I mean, I can drive with no problem according to our laws. And when you become a Christian, you understand the laws of God. God opens your heart to those things, and you begin to understand what God wants you to do. And you understand that you need to obey, and you need to trust God. You need to follow God's laws. But a person who's lost does not understand that. They don't know why they should live by God's laws, and they don't want to live by God's laws. But when you are a citizen of God's kingdom and you are a person who has your heart right with God, you know what doesn't bother you? It doesn't bother you when I get up and preach a message about obeying God's commandments. It doesn't bother you when I preach a message about sin. And that's because if you're doing something you, don't, you shouldn't be doing, you want to know about that. You want to know how to correct that in your life so that you can become more like Jesus Christ. But that's not true for a lost person. Now, how do you tell if somebody's a foreigner or a stranger? You get out on Highway 101 and you see a a person driving in your lane coming towards you, then you figure that person must not be from around here. Something's wrong that's not right. And when a person is not a child of God, their lifestyle and their habits and the way that they live identifies them immediately as being part of the devil's kingdom and not part of God's kingdom. Now, here's a sad thing, though. I'd have to add this, that many Christians who are living in the world it's hard to identify them as being part of God's kingdom. And that's because they've decided to accept the lifestyles of the world. They've decided to dress like the world or talk like the world. And so you couldn't even tell if they're a Christian, if they're part of God's kingdom. Well, here's what I want to do. I I don't want to be recognized as a foreigner. 
I mean, I, I should say it backwards. I don't want to be recognized as a, as a part of this world. I want to be seen as a foreigner here. And I want to act, I want to live, I want to talk like a Christian should live so people could say about me, that person's not of this world. And I hope that's what you're thinking too. But then the third thing that we find out about uh, God's kingdom is that we share common privileges. We share a common relationship, we share common laws, but we also have common privileges. Now, in America, I don't want to be known as a foreigner because I like my privileges. I'm an American citizen, I have the right to vote, and I appreciate that privilege. Um, As an American citizen, even though I don't take advantage of this, I do have access to certain governmental programs because I am an American citizen. Now, unfortunately, that might not be the best analogy that I could use because uh, today it doesn't really matter if you're an illegal alien or not. You can still have a part of America's privileges and get in on America's programs. Uh, I am yet to understand how that you can break the laws of our country and you can enter illegally into this country and you can gain access to all the same things that American citizens can access. I don't understand that. Now, that doesn't seem quite right to me. Uh, especially when we have uh, skyrocketing health care costs, when we have taxes that are just out of sight, we have uh, no money to fix our roads, and here we are handing out money to anybody who has their hand out. That's my political statement for tonight. I'll stop with that. God's kingdom is different. His kingdom is different. You see, you don't get the privileges of being in God's kingdom unless you are a member, a part of God's kingdom. You don't get the resources of God's kingdom unless you are a part of God's kingdom. I remember this message that uh, I preached the last time from Ephesians on verse number 18. And we talked about having access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. If you're not a part of God's kingdom, you don't have access to the Heavenly Father. You don't have the rights and the privileges to come to God in prayer even. Because that's reserved for God's children, people that are in the kingdom. And then we think about the resources of this kingdom and the privilege that comes with that. You have the power and the weight of this entire kingdom behind you. You know, it used to be, as an American, if you were in a foreign country and something bad happened to you or you were treated bad, that this, the American government would come to your aid. Especially if you were in the service, you were a serviceman and something happens to you overseas, the power of the United States government is going to help you. Now, do you know this, folks? That is still true today of a Christian. And that is whenever you are in trouble, when you have a problem, you have the power of the, of the God of this universe. You have unlimited resources behind you. I mean, if necessary, God would dispatch a legion of angels to come and help you. And so as a child of God, being in the kingdom of God, you have the power, you have the weight of heaven, you have angelic armies that are behind you. Then the fourth thing that we find about being in God's kingdom is that we share common responsibilities. Now, let's don't think about privileges without thinking about responsibilities. In America, you have rights as American citizens, but with that also comes responsibility. That comes with a price. Now, to live here the way it should work, the government says you have to pay your taxes. And if you don't pay your taxes... Well, you may not, you'll still be a citizen of America, but you'll wish that you had paid your taxes. I I read in the paper, I think it was yesterday, that this guy that won, uh, what was it, a million dollars on that TV show Survivor, he didn't pay his taxes. And so he got an extended stay with room and board in a federal penitentiary. And that's what will happen because you have responsibilities as a citizen. Now, one thing that we need to always remember is this, folks, and I really believe this. It's God and country before ourselves. 
In the Revolutionary War, Nathan Hale said, I regret that I had but one life to lose for my country. And he said that because he believed in self-sacrifice. America's freedoms were won with self-sacrifice. And do you know this, that Jesus teaches the very same thing? He teaches self-sacrifice. And our responsibility as part of God's kingdom is that we advance God's kingdom even if it comes at the expense of ourselves. I also believe that we have a responsibility to defend our country. I think that we ought to defend our honor. Or we need to defend our flag. But I would also say this, that Christians also have a responsibility to defend the doctrines of God's word. We're in a battle today against modernism. We fight against false prophets today. Today we are bombarded over the veracity of God's word. I mean, there are people who, who are in churches who no longer believe in the infallibility and the inspiration of Scripture. I mentioned Natalie just a moment ago. One of the things she told me as we were talking, she said, we went to some churches here. We tried to find a Baptist church that we could go to. And she said, one church we went to used five different Bible versions in the message. She said, I'm not up for that. Well, thank the Lord for that. We have a responsibility to defend our doctrinal standards. We fight today against generic Christianity that says that doctrine doesn't matter. We can all sit down together because we're all working for the same place. We're all fighting the same enemy. But folks, I'll tell you something. When we sit down with folks like that, we'll see the enemy, and the enemy is us. It's our responsibility to defend God's Word. You know who the enemy is? It's the people out there saying, tear down denominational walls. Abandon your beliefs so we can get together. And we ought not to do that. They want us to abandon our beliefs on doctrines of grace. They want us to abandon baptism the way we preach it. They want us to abandon the local church. That's the enemy. And it's our responsibility to preach the truth week after week in this place, no matter how many churches in Rona Park or in this country think otherwise. We are to defend God's word. So those are your responsibilities when you're in God's kingdom. But then what other pictures does Paul give us? We are in God's kingdom, but these verses also show us something else. We are in God's family. Now, here's another thing that comes automatically to you when you become a Christian. When you trust Christ, you are automatically in God's family. Every person who is saved is in God's family. Now, being a part of a family is different from being in the kingdom. You see, in a kingdom, you have a relationship with people... Uh, By virtue of being a citizen of this country, you have a certain relationship with people, but you don't have an intimate relationship with them. Now, there are people in New York who are American citizens, and I can sympathize with them over a tragedy like 9-11. There are Americans in uh, New Orleans and on the Gulf Coast, and I can sympathize with those people because of a tragedy like the hurricanes that came there. I can sympathize with them over that. But my relationship with those people, even though we're in the same kingdom or in the same country, yet we don't have an intimate relationship. But Paul goes on here in the 19th verse, and he's progressing further with this idea of Christian unity and and our oneness that we have in Christ. And so he goes on, he says, we are fellow citizens. That speaks about the country that we're in, the kingdom that we're in. But he goes on to say, and of the household of God. Now, what is a household? It's a family. What's different about being in the kingdom and being in a family? What's the difference in the two? Well, one of the differences is 
In a family, there is a blood relationship. Now, we're not just acquaintances. We're related by blood. I have lots of nice neighbors. I have uh, friends that I've met. There's places where I go. I see Americans. You may be friends with someone who's in your office. But those people don't have a blood relationship with you. And we feel closer to our families because of this blood relationship. Now, in the United States, in our country, we're bound together by certain laws. But in a family, we're bound together by our blood. And you know the easiest way to tell the difference between the two things? Uh, Just being a citizen of the country and being a member of the family? Let me tell you one of the ways. Uh, Being a pastor and having been in church nearly all of my life, I can tell you this, that you can have people who love the pastor... You can have people that are best friends with the pastor, and they will support the pastor. But the moment that the pastor has to discipline, or the church has to discipline a family member, now things change. And people aren't such good friends with the pastor anymore. The relationship changes. You know why? We all know it. Blood is thicker than water. That's what people say. And that's because our family relationships are closer than other relationships. Now, this is why Paul moves upward now in explaining what we get as Christians. We are citizens of a heavenly country, but our relationship is much closer than just being citizens. We are related by blood. We're members of the same family by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the, what Jesus said about this in Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 6. We, we use these verses on Sunday morning. John 6, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now, just like I told you on Sunday morning, here's what a Christian must do. You must ingest Jesus Christ. Christ has to become a part of you. The blood of Christ has to flow through your veins. And that happens when you trust him as Savior. When you have the blood of Christ applied to you, you become Christ's blood brother. And that means that you have God as your father, just as Jesus has God as his father. So this is better than being citizens of a country. This is being blood-related to this new family. It's a blood relationship. What else does that mean? Well, it also means that there is an intimate relationship. You're part of something that's far more intimate than just being an acquaintance with someone. Have you ever had this happen to you? You may be visiting uh, some people that you know, visiting another family. You may be sitting there with their family members. In walks a family member who has a problem. And the family feels uncomfortable, and you feel uncomfortable about discussing this problem or this family problem uh, while you're there, and, and they while you're in their presence. And so they may do one of two things. They may wait until you leave, and then discuss the problem. Or, if it's a pressing problem, they may ask you to leave so they can discuss the problem. Now, do you see what I'm talking about? You are a friend, but you're not a blood relation. You don't have the intimacy of their family. That's why people have family secrets. I mean, people don't want to divulge things about their families because of that intimate relationship. So being in a family is better than being in the kingdom because we have an intimate relationship. There's care and concern because families care more about their own than they do anyone else. 
Sort of like this. You may have a neighbor, for instance, who has a child, a son or a daughter, who's in the war in Iraq. And that son or daughter is killed in the war. Now, you may feel sorry for them, and you can sympathize with them over it. But you know it's different if that son or daughter is yours and is killed in the war. And why is it different? It's because of this thing of intimacy. It's a special relationship that you have. And so Paul says we are of the household of God. And that means we have an intimate blood relationship. Now we come to the third picture of our privileges of Christians. And the third picture is that we are in God's church. Now in the beginning I said two areas of privileges come automatically. You are in God's kingdom. That comes automatically. When you get saved you are in God's family. That comes automatically. But this third one does not come automatically. Now, this is where we differ from so many other churches out there because we do not believe that every person who is saved is automatically in the church. Those who confuse the kingdom and the church will say this. They say that when you get saved, you are automatically in the church. Everybody that's saved is in the church. But do you know the Bible never says that? Not one place does the Bible ever say that. In fact, there are 118 times in the New Testament where the Greek word ekklesia is used, and that's the word that we translate as assembly or as church. And out of 118 times that that word is used, 115 times refers to local individual churches, like the church at Ephesus that Paul's writing to, or the church at Corinth, or the church at Antioch. There's one reference that has nothing to do with the church at all, there's another reference that has, uh, has to do with the institution of the church. There's one more reference that has to do with the church in prospect. And so not one of those references refers to a universal, invisible church that people are preaching today. Everybody who is saved is not automatically in the church. Now, actually, it's quite the opposite. Well, how do we know that? Well, if you go to the book of Acts chapter 2, I'm not going to turn there, but you may want to a little bit later. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who got saved. And if you look at verse number 41 of that chapter, it tells us there that those who received the word were baptized and they were added to them. What were they added to? They were added to the church. The church is already in existence. They're already meeting with 120 members in the, utter, uh, in the upper room. And so you don't automatically become a member of the church when you get saved. Instead, the only way that you can get into a church is to be baptized into the church. Baptism is the way that you get into the church. So that's the step that you have to take. You must be baptized under the authority of a New Testament church. So you're automatically in the kingdom, automatically in the family... But you have to be placed into the church. Now, from the kingdom to the family is a step up. And from the family into the church is another step up. And that's because the church has a special relationship with Christ that doesn't exist just for the family or just for the kingdom. So what do we learn from this? Well, let me show you three metaphors that the Bible gives us concerning the church. Three metaphors in the scripture for the church. The first one is, we are Christ building. Now, in verse 20 and 21 of our text, the scripture says, "...and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord." So the first metaphor that we have here is that of a building. Now, you see, the relationship is getting a little bit closer. Being a citizen is great. Being in the family is great. But you know, we can have family members that are way off somewhere else. 
We have family in Kentucky. And we love our family in Kentucky. We're close to one another, but we're not together. They're in a different place. But in a building, you can't have a building where it's not all together. How could you have a building where the parts of a building are someplace else? I mean, that's not a building. You see, when you take a building and you take away the blocks of that building, then the building is going to fall down. You no longer have a building. A building is a cohesive unit. All the parts are intricately connected to one another so that a building is not really a building. It's not complete until all the parts of the building are assembled. For instance, you take that wall back there of the church, you take all the studs out of that wall, and the building's going to fall down. There's nothing to support these beams if you take all of that back there, take it out. And so the building cannot stay together. Now, as a church then, as God's building, we have to be fitted together into a framework that works together. I'm actually going to speak about that more in the next three sermons uh, on on this uh, subject. But we are not independent. We're not individual parts that are out on our own. We have an inner dependency on the other parts of the building. Our families can exist apart from one another. As I say, I've got family in Kentucky, but they're still my family, but we're not together. This is a closer relationship. We're in the same building. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the physical building. I'm talking about all the members coming together. So we can't have a church that's properly constituted unless all of the church is together. And quite frankly, folks, if we look around our auditorium tonight, all the church is not together. And so the church doesn't work as well. It doesn't stand up as well. It's not as strong when all of the membership is not together. Then the second metaphor that the Bible gives us of the church is that we are Christ's body. We're going to come to this a little bit later on in our study of Ephesians. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, it says, For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And in the 32nd verse of that chapter, Paul says this, This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, there's no doubt from reading that scripture that the church is called the body. It's called the body of Christ. Now, I want to bring up something, too, in passing that I really think that we need to address. Um, I talked about baptism just a moment ago, and I don't really have time to preach on baptism tonight. But there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13, that says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, I want you to listen to me closely because you need to follow me on this. The scripture says that we are baptized into one body. The body is the church. I mean, we've already established that by Ephesians 5, 32, that the body of Christ is the church. Now, the question that comes up in this scripture is, what is this baptism that it's talking about? What is this baptism? Now, incredibly, there are some who believe in the local church who say, in local church doctrine, who say this, that what this means is Holy Spirit baptism. And so they say that everybody who is baptized is baptized into the body of Christ. But you see, there's no way that you can believe in a local visible church and say that that is Holy Spirit baptism unless you have given a new definition to the word body here, that it must mean something other than the church. Otherwise, you have a universal invisible church. You can't have both those things fitting together. Now, it doesn't work. Not according to Ephesians 5, verses 30 through 32. So the baptism that's spoken of in that verse cannot be Holy Spirit baptism. It must be water baptism. Now... 
That is the only thing that fits together with what we just read back over in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And then I might also add this when We talked in the Acts study. Uh, we were studying the book of Acts, and, and I told you then, I was teaching you then, there is no such thing as Holy Spirit baptism today. And a Baptist who says that this is Holy Spirit baptism has just painted himself into a corner. And he's painted himself into a corner that the Pentecostals and the Charismatics just love. Because Holy Spirit baptism is the place that they fit in this second work of grace and this talking in tongues and all those things that they do. But there's not a Holy Spirit baptism today. In the Bible, there are at most two examples of Holy Spirit baptism. Maybe there's only one, and some people believe there's only one, and that would be on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came, it tells us that they were baptized. That's one incident of Holy Spirit baptism. The only other one, if you can call it one, was with Peter when he preached to Cornelius. And the Holy Ghost fell on them, and they also began to speak with tongues. And so that is the only other incident in the Bible that we can have a Holy Spirit baptism. So the church is the body of Christ. And if you want to read the definitive scriptures on the body... Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and that'll tell you more about it. But I think you can see this at least, that the body is a closer relationship than a building. A body is organic. A a body is living. A body is breathing. It's a moving organism. And every part of the body is important. And the body functions better when it has all of its parts. I was watching a television show the other day, and there was a young man who uh, lost his arms or maybe he was born without any arms, I don't know which it was, but this fella had learned how to play the piano with his toes. Now, you, you can play the piano with your toes. You can do that. But I would say that it's never going to be as good as playing the piano with your hands and your fingers. You need all the parts of your body. And again, we've got to have all the parts of the body together. And you know, the, the body, when we think about it, the body's just an amazing organism. I mean, this is a design of God that we can't even fathom how God has so intricately put the body together. And I would also tell you this, folks, that the church is an amazing body. The church has done some amazing things in this world. This is the way that the gospel of Christ is propagated. It's through the church of Jesus Christ. But then there's one last metaphor for the church. I'll try to hurry on here. We're Christ's building. We are Christ's body. And thirdly, we are Christ's bride. Now, this is a big subject. The bride of Christ is a big subject. But I'm going to tell you tonight what I think the, bread, or the bride of Christ is. Those who believe in a universal, invisible church believe that all Christians are a part of the bride of Christ. No matter if you're a member of a local church or not, no matter how far you may get away from the Lord, no matter how bad your habits may be, no matter how bad an attitude that you have, that if you are a saved person, you're born again, then you are part of the bride of Christ. First, I don't believe in a universal invisible church. I don't believe that in any form or fashion. And so I don't have to try to weasel myself out of a compromising position trying to explain how that a person who is, uh, has all the wrong attitudes about Christian living and has all the wrong attitudes about serving God and who lives the wrong way and, and uh, is not the kind of Christian they ought to be, I don't have to figure out a position to get them into the bride of Christ. What I believe is in a local, visible church. It is a church that meets. It's a church that observes the ordinances of Christ. It is a church that preaches the word of God. It's a church that is coveted together to preach God's word. It's also a church that practices discipline. 
And we do that because it's our responsibility to keep the body of Christ as pure as we possibly can in this world. And so what I believe about the bride of Christ, that it is the faithful members of the Lord's church who are a part of the bride. Now I say faithful members, and that'll give you an indication that I also believe that a person can have their name on the church roll and they will not be a part of the bride of Christ. I also believe that the bride of Christ will be the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. I believe all the saved people, all saved people are going to go to heaven. All saved people will be in heaven, whether you're part of the church or not. But the bride of Christ will specially live in the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, verse 2, it says, And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. After this world is destroyed and the world is renovated, there's going to come a great feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that time, this is when the bride of Christ will be united to Jesus in the holiest of all matrimony. And they will live with Jesus Christ forever and ever. Now I said this, a family is closer than citizens of the same country. A church is closer than a family. A body is closer than a building. But folks, the bride of Christ is the closest of all. And that's because in a marriage relationship, and, and God uses these things as emblematic of one another, the church and the bride, and in a marriage, that is the most intimate of all relationships. You know, the Bible says we come bone to bone and flesh of flesh. And what a bride does and what a husband does, the bridegroom does, they must forsake their mother and their father They forsake all other relationships and give it totally, give themselves totally to this one relationship. And folks, the bride of Christ is the closest relationship to God that has ever been created. Now, I am of the opinion that the bride of Christ stands right underneath the very trinity of God. That's how holy it is to him. Now, because of that, I'm going to give you the last statement on your listening sheet tonight. Your last statement. The bride is the closest place to the heart of Jesus. So we see here how incredibly Paul brings us to a climax in this chapter. He starts with the depths of our depravity. He begins with no hope. He, he brings in the grace of God. He tells us that we can be a part of the covenant of God. He tells us that we are in God's kingdom. He says we are a part of God's family. Still better than that, he says we are a part of God's church. And then he gives us the highest place that we can attain to. He says, it is possible for you to be a part of Christ's bride. You know, here's how we say it best. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Thank the Lord for this great institution that he's given us of the church. Let's bow our heads, please. Lord, we thank you for the time to teach your word tonight. We just ask you, Lord, that what we've said may be a benefit to someone tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the great privilege that you've given us. We can be a part of your church. And Lord, help us to be faithful that we might attain a place of being a part of the bride of Christ. Lord, I ask you to speak to hearts tonight. Draw us all close to you. Someone who needs to make a move, would you lay it on their heart? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we